Okay, so thank you again for joining me, and a huge thank you for everyone who posted on the discussion board this week. It's so rich and inspiring and moving to, to read the discoveries that you're finding already in just this first week of the course, even after just one week. I also really appreciated reading about some of the challenges that you shared with so much honesty. And I could recognize a lot of those struggles and challenges from my own experience of working with Metta and the Brahma Viharas. And actually that's what motivated me to offer this course. Because in my own experience there is so much rich learning and so much development and deepening of the practice when we can turn to face those challenges and help them to resolve. So just to be clear, when I talk about the practice, I mean both Brahma Vihara and insight of Vipassana practice. Because in my own experience, and as many of you are discovering, these two modes, they powerfully work together to support each other on this path to freedom. So today I wanted to turn towards some of those challenges that very commonly come up when we try to develop the heart qualities of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. Just to re reassure you first up that they're extremely common and normal. Not only are they common and normal, they actually are the practice. So as many of you have heard me say, the Brahma Vihara are sometimes referred to in quotation marks as purification practices. And that means that they're almost designed to reveal to us what gets in the way. So again, as many of you heard this favorite training slogan of mine, if it's in the way, it is the way. So, for example, if you sit down with the intention to cultivate kindness and you find yourself bored out of your brain or seething with resentment or completely numb and shut down, or maybe you just nauseated at the sheer goodness of it all, all of those are the practice working. Because if we don't see what's coming up, we can't do anything about it. And even though this might feel very unpleasant, it's actually good news. And it's an opportunity to bring metta and our vipassana insight practice together. So we bring mindfulness to the responses in the body, the heart, the mind, as we're cultivating metta. And we try to develop an attitude of kind curiosity to whatever non-metta might be showing up. So rather than getting lost in judgment about it, which of course only fuels the aversion, the non-metta, instead we try to mindfully recognize what the reaction is, and to bring in the wisdom to not take it personally, to not blame ourselves, to not feed that inner critic. So even as we're trying to absorb into the heart energy of kindness, there'll be times when we also need to notice what else is going on, and try to stay open to the full spectrum of our experience in that moment, with kind curiosity, with non-judgment. 
And in my own practice, I found it somewhat reassuring to hear that in the tradition, each one of these four Brahmavihara qualities has what is known as a near enemy and a far enemy. So these are emotions and mind states that tend to come up pretty commonly and undermine our attempts to develop kindness, compassion and so on. Back in week zero of the introduction module, I did include a page with suggested phrases for the Brahmaviharas, and that same page has a list of what the enemies are for each quality, so you might refer back to that. Just as a reminder for now, the near enemy of metta is sometimes called affection with attachment. Affection with attachment or conditional well-wishing well-wishing with kind of strings attached or an agenda. And the far enemy of metta is ill-will or aversion. In other words, the exact opposite of what we're trying to cultivate. So I'll say a bit more about those later on. First, just to explore more generally how to work with the so-called hindrances or obstacles or distractions that can come up with metta practice. So just like with mindfulness of breathing, the strategy that we take will depend on the strength of what's getting in the way. So if it's just a mild distraction and we realize our attention has wandered off for a few minutes, then just as with mindfulness of breathing, we recognize that distraction and with a smile, we simply begin again. And then perhaps a few minutes later, maybe a few seconds later, we realize we've lost connection with the meta practice. And again, without any judgment, we just acknowledge the attention has wandered, we celebrate the fact that we noticed that, and then we gently reconnect with the meta practice. So if we're using the radiating energy method, then that reconnecting will come back to the heart center. And if necessary, we bring up the image of the puppy or the kitten or the warm embers of the fire or the golden light of the sun. We'll try to steady the attention there and let it rekindle the energy of kindness. And then when there's some energy back, we can gently let it shine forth or expand or radiate as appropriate. If we're using the reciting phrases method, then when there's a minor distraction, again, we can bring the attention back to the heart center. And you might even find it helpful just to put a hand on your heart for a few moments as a physical embodied reminder of your intention to cultivate kindness. Then if you're working with a specific person, you try to reconnect to their presence as vividly as you can remembering what you appreciate and enjoy about them. And then also trying to sink into the meaning of the phrases, seeing if you can get almost a bodily felt sense of safety, of ease, of happiness, of peace, and so on, as you're extending the wish for those qualities to your benefactor or good friend. So those are the standard ways for working with relatively minor distractions, relatively low intensity hindrances. At times though, we might notice those hindrances coming back, sticking around, perhaps getting more intense. 
and then we might realize that we're in the terrain of the so-called far enemy of metta, which is ill will or aversion. So basically any afflictive state, boredom, irritation, judgment, contempt, jealousy, resentment, anger, and so on. It's usually pretty easy to recognize when we're in enemy territory because these states are unpleasant, painful, and usually we naturally want to get rid of them. So once we recognize the presence of this far enemy, there are a few different strategies that we can experiment with to get us back on track. So if we decide we want to continue cultivating the metta, then we come back up and change to an easier being for a while. So for example, if we'd been trying to practice with a so-called difficult being, then we can gently just say goodbye to them, put them aside and invite in the good friend or the benefactor, maybe a pet. Many of you mentioned how easy it is to feel metta for your cat or your dog, so you might come back to them, or a favorite grandchild. Just any being who, when we think of them, there's a natural flicker of warmth. And we can stay with the practice for that easy being for as long as necessary until we feel the metta has got stronger and more stable. And then we might gently invite the difficult person in again, just say hi, spend a minute or two with them, see how that feels. So, as I hope you get a sense, this can be a very imaginative, creative practice. And just to be clear, it is not cheating to move back to the easy person. It's actually skillful. So, as I said last week, the general invitation is to start where it happens most easily. And one analogy for this, I think it's like lifting weights. If we take on 50 kilos first up when we don't have the strength for it, we can injure ourselves. So it's much better to change to a five kilo weight, work with that for a while, and then go to the 10 kilos, and then the 20 kilos. And it's pretty obvious with that physical analogy that this needs to be a gradual process. But one challenge with meta practice is that unfortunately people often try to jump too quickly to situations or people that are too challenging for the strength of their metta at that point. And then they tend to either blame the practice for not working or blame themselves for not doing it right. And of course it's natural to want to heal and resolve and solve our painful relationships. But if we go there too quickly, it's often not so helpful. So I really want to emphasize taking the path of least resistance here. Don't be ashamed to take a strategic with withdrawal when necessary to an easier being and take your time. Now because this is a six-week course and we're kind of just a week on meta, a week on compassion and so on, and we've spent one whole week focusing on metta, that does not mean that by the end of the week you should be overflowing with abundant metta for all beings, including the people who have really hurt or even harmed you. So my intention for the course is just to give you a sense of what each of the, these qualities are, and then hopefully you'll continue to explore them on your own in the coming weeks, months, years, long after this course ends. 
So feel free to take your time and not force yourself to get with the program, as they say. And just to name, in light of that, one of the challenges perhaps that's particular to Brahma-Vihara practice is that we hear terms like unconditional kindness, heavenly realms, sublime states, the four immeasurables and their boundlessness and so on, it can very easily activate our underlying idealism and perfectionism and the flip sides of inadequacy, unworthiness, harsh self-criticism. So if you do happen to find yourself in this terrain of maybe more intense hindrances, there are a couple of strategies you can try. One is to switch to one of the other Brahma-Vihara, which, as you may remember in the analogies I gave you in the introduction, each of the Brahma-Vihara works as like a different facet, and they all work together to balance each other out. So, for example, if you find yourself drowning in self-judgment or self-criticism, you might switch to self-compassion practice for a while, or perhaps some mudita practice in the form of acknowledging your own strengths, your own good qualities. So we'll be exploring these practices more in the coming weeks. So I won't say too much about that now. The second strategy for dealing with intense hindrances is to switch to vipassana and bring in some mindful investigation. So just taking some time to gently explore what is going on here in the body, the heart, the mind, when that hindrance is present. It's usually best to do this by bringing the awareness down into the body and staying with the physical sensations and the emotions as much as possible, just to avoid any tendency to get caught in the head and rehash those same old stories yet again. We can use the insight practice of mental labeling to name whatever emotions might be presenting themselves and hopefully get a clearer recognition. Hopefully that clearer recognition can help to soften and give us a better idea of how we might meet the particular difficulty or distress that we're experiencing. So just to acknowledge that these more intense hindrances are more likely to come up when we're working with a category of the so-called difficult person. So again, if you do decide you want to explore this category, I encourage you to start with an easy difficult person, if that's not too much of a contradiction. In fact, you might experiment, some of you including me, might have a few difficult people that you could kind of audition to see who is the most difficult person, who is slightly less difficult, who is the easiest difficult person, and you might arrange them in a row of gradation from relatively easy difficult to intensely difficult, and then you can reserve the most difficult person for later. So, just a couple of suggestions that sometimes can help with this category. Some of you shared these on the discussion boards too. One is to imagine our difficult person as a very young child or even a baby to see if you can just connect with that truth that they haven't always been difficult. 
And perhaps at times they might even have been easily lovable. Some people go to the other end of the lifespan with the same intention and remember that their difficult person is going to die. So they might imagine the person on their deathbed just to see if that helps to soften any resistance. I recommend being careful with that strategy because depending on the circumstances it might shade over into yes, you are going to die and almost a little bit of hmm. So just notice the underlying intention, motivation. So as I said earlier, the far enemy of metta is usually easiest to recognize because it feels unpleasant, even painful. By contrast, the near enemy isn't always so easy to see because it's more subtle. Sometimes it can even feel quite pleasant. So traditionally, the near enemy is defined as affection with attachment or conditional well-wishing. And it comes up when we have any kind of agenda for our meta practice, including even the wish to feel some kind of emotion, to get something from it. So if we're doing the practice with the expectation that it should be giving us states of oceanic bliss or boundless love or even just a few moments of heart opening, if we're focusing on that kind of goal, then it's taken us out of the unconditionality. So that's why it's said that even if you're not feeling anything at all, even if you're just mechanically reciting the phrases and they feel dry as dust, it's still worth doing the practice. Because what that's cultivating is the intention to develop kindness. So sometimes I think of it as like water dripping onto limestone. The stone might seem really hard and solid, but drop by drop by drop, might not seem like anything is happening in any given moment, but at some point the action of the water seeps in, it opens up a little crack, and a seed can grow there. And eventually that seed turns into a huge tree. Now we don't know exactly when that might happen, but as many of you described on the discussion boards, we've noticed how our emotional set point is changing over time. Because of these practices, we become less reactive, more receptive, more open, more interested in others. And the boundaries between self and other start to become less distinct. So keep in mind that this practice develops naturally and organically if we let it. And it's not about trying to manufacture any particular emotion. This is often where people get tripped up by trying to force themselves to feel a fake kind of kindness, and that's really not so useful. And again, in my own practice, it was a significant turning point when I realized it's not about trying to conjure up or manufacture positive emotions. Instead, it's about tuning into what's actually already there, if we can learn how to recognize it. So this comes from the Buddha's understanding that all the afflictive states are not inherent to our hearts and minds. They are temporary visitors. 
and that when those visitors are released, the four Brahma-Vihara are actually the natural state, the resting state of our hearts and minds. So as a metaphor for this, some of you heard me talk about the Hubble telescope, which in my relatively non-scientific understanding, it's a very powerful piece of technology that is scanning the universe and bringing back information from the furthest reaches of our universe. And in the beginning it felt like I was turning that Hubble telescope into the deepest, darkest, furthest reaches of my own heart and trying to find the faintest signs of life. And even that recognition of the slightest pulse of warmth way, way, way in the background just that recognition can start to amplify the signal and then it's like our antenna gets more sensitive and these Brahma-Vihara qualities start to become more available to us to fill the heart and mind and eventually become more of our default setting. There's one caveat here, just to name in relation to that terminology about the near enemy being called affection with attachment. We're not talking about healthy attachment here. So this is not about somehow trying to get rid of the natural love and connection that we feel for our children or our parents, our partners, our family. The attachment that's being referred to here is the kind of possessive, self-centered clinging that can manifest as wanting someone to be a certain way or expecting someone to meet all of our needs or trying to control someone to do exactly what we want all the time. And I'm sure we've all experienced the claustrophobia of that kind of so-called kindness. So to be clear, it's not about getting rid of attachments, but making them healthy. Even so, at times this conditionality can creep into our meta practice. So we might find that showing up unexpectedly in the middle of the phrases, may you be well, may you happy, may you be happy, may you finally learn to pick up after yourself and be more tidy. So we just notice these little voices coming in. Or sometimes it shows up as a reluctance to move on to the from the benefactor or the good friend to a more neutral person. And this is where having the classical sequence of people can be helpful because it can reveal our preferences. And again, in my own practice, I've noticed at times when there's some momentum with the benefactor or the good friend and we're feeling flooded with kindness and appreciation in relation to our dear friend because they're just such a good person. And it's so inspiring to sit with them and take in how lovely they are. There's no hurry to move on to the neutral person. Maybe I'll come back to them later. So we can see how we get stuck in a more sticky relationship to actually reinforcing our preference. So just to notice that, meet it with kindness, gently move on. There's one other misunderstanding in relation to metta practice, and I think Liz mentioned this, particularly with the reciting phrases method. There can be an apparent paradox that we seem to be wishing something for someone. 
So didn't I just say it was about being unconditional? And it might sound like we have an agenda. May you be safe, may you be well, and so on. And for those of us who are brought up in theistic religious traditions, the phrases can easily sound like some kind of prayer, where we're asking for something to happen. We're not asking a God, clearly, but it still seems like we're asking for something, someone to be well and safe. So what's that about? So we need to keep in mind that the underlying intention of this practice is to develop kindness in our own hearts and minds, independent of what may or may not be happening externally and for other people. So if we're using words and phrases, those are just skillful means. They're a particular method to try to develop that heart quality of kindness. And there isn't any intention that by reciting them we're trying to change anything. We're not trying to change other people. We're not trying to change their circumstances. We're trying to change our own hearts and minds. So it might sound contradictory, but in a way what we're exploring here is the balance between wisdom and the Brahma-Vihara qualities. So wisdom understands that we don't have nearly as much control over things as we'd like to believe we do. Try as we might, we cannot always get what we want. And then in spite of that, kindness comes in to offer warmth and care and friendliness. Ultimately, no matter what the situation is or how people are behaving. So there's a lot we can explore here. And I'll be returning to some of these themes over the coming weeks. I just would like to highlight before we close the encouragement to fully let yourself abide in any enjoyment of these practices and any of the warmth and kindness that, at least in moments, is the natural result of this practice. And I say this because it's very common for people to have an unconscious belief that this path, a spiritual path, is supposed to be hard and challenging and even painful. And any moments of respite, let alone any moments that are pleasant, are somehow a mistake, a sign that we're not practicing hard enough or that where those pleasant moments are undeserved. And we should be doing something for other people instead of just sitting here enjoying kindness. We should be working for the good of the community or the environment or fighting for social justice and so on. If that feels true for you, you might just gently explore some of that deeper societal conditioning that so many of us suffer from around always being productive, the pressure to justify your existence by doing something every waking minute of the day and avoiding anything that might even slightly appear self-indulgent because that conditioning is just another enemy, in quotation marks, that can get in the way of these beautiful qualities of heart and mind developing and actually becoming an even more powerful resource to share with our communities. Okay, so I think that's plenty to be going on with. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.